You are listening to Chthonia, the podcast of the Dark Feminine. Chthonia's logo was designed by J.R. Malpair. Background music is Phantasm by Kevin McLeod. Hello and welcome to Chthonia. I am your host, Breege Burke. And um, this week we're going to actually continue our series on the uh, Dark Hindu Mothers, uh, we did Kali last week, and we're going to actually um, jump ahead a little bit in the uh, list of Mahavidyas. And we're going to go to some of the uh, more, I'm going to start with some of the more complicated ones. Um, first of all, though, before I get started, I just want to say, forgive me, I had actually recorded a whole version of this particular um, podcast and then discovered that my uh, recorder was not actually recording anything. I, I had like gone through a whole 50 minutes, and it um, lost all of it. Um, I blame Mercury Retrograde, but, you know, he could blame a lot of things, I guess. Um, so uh, so this is kind of a take two, but in a way it's good, because then this has kind of allowed me to get my really get my thoughts together on a goddess who is... Um, I, I remember the first time I took a look at, um, at this one, and, and, and I really... I, I was like fascinated and baffled at the same time, but we'll talk about it. So, who is this goddess? I'm I'm referring to some you know um, abstract here. The goddess in question this week is Chinamasta. Okay, now Chinamasta may not be one of the more well-known uh, Mahavidyas or dark mothers. Again, you know, there's Kali. Um, Lalita Tripura Sundari is quite well known, um, at least among um, Shakti worshippers. Um, Tara is quite well known. Um, you know, there's, there's quite a few others that are, that are well known. So Chinamasta is sort of, um, I don't want to say she's entirely obscure, but she's, you know, she certainly, she's one of those goddesses. There, there are Chinamasta temples, but there are very few. I think there's maybe like maybe two or three that, that are known of, unless, you know, there's some local, um, local worship that goes on. But Chinamasta is a goddess. Um, during Kali Puja, which happens in November, Chinamasta usually is worshipped at midnight. Okay. Um, however, it is said that householders, meaning average people who are not renunciates or sadaks or uh, sannyasi, uh, meaning people who are not religious people in, in Hindu terms, uh, should not, um, should be very careful, should not do the Chinamasta worship. They feel it's very, very dangerous. Um, now again, I sort of have an opinion of that along with, um, with everything else, uh, you know, that I have, uh, you know, I, I, you know, when people tell me, um, you know, when it comes to the dark mothers, you know, that, you know, what, what you should and shouldn't, or what's, what's, what might be, what might be dangerous for you. Um, you know, I tend to throw that out the window. Um, but Chinamasta is one of the uh, deities that I have, um, I'd had on my altar for quite some time, an image of her. And, um... Now, again, as we had, we had explained in the very first um, intro to Tantra, the Mahavidyas are a group of goddesses. There's, there's several different stories of their origin. Usually it, it comes to some kind of disagreement between either Sati and Shiva or Parvati and Shiva, where there's an argument between the two of them. And um, one is when Sati wishes to go to um, the sacrifice that her father um, Dakshina is having. Uh, and, and, uh, <clears throat> and, uh, is it, am I getting the name right again? It's for some reason, I always get that name a little bit wrong. It was it Dakina or Dakshina. Any case, 
uh, when she's about to go to the the sacrifice and Shiva says, no, we're not going to go because we weren't invited. And then she gets mad and she shows him her her scary form, in which case she expands in the 10 directions. Um, but this is more than just, um, and you know, Sakti, Shati or um, uh, Parvati asserting her dominance. This actually shows you the 10 forms of the divine feminine. And they all have kind of their, they all are fairly complicated in their aspects. Um, and I love the mythology of the Mahavidyas because I feel like it, when we talk about the, the divine feminine or the dark feminine, people tend to only look at it in terms of, oh, well, you know, a loving mother goddess or, you know, or um, or perhaps, you know, you have the reverse, the old hag or the witch goddess. Um, and we've talked about some of these variations, certainly in Western mythologies, um, like the Greek and Roman. But um, but I, I like be, what I love about the Hindu mythology is that it kind of illustrates how complicated this mythology actually is. It's not, um, you know, the, the the mythology of the feminine is there. There's so much mystery and so much paradox contained within it that actually teaches us a lot about life, about what male and female are, um, about death, about sexuality, about um, living a quote-unquote spiritual life versus one in the earth. Um, there's just so much there to meditate on and contemplate. Um, and it, it can it can be literally mind-blowing, which is actually kind of a, an appropriate thing to say when, when we talk about Chinamasta. I will talk about that, um, the, the quote-unquote um, literal mind-blowing um, you know, in the course of this podcast. Um, but okay, so Chinamasta is this, um, she is known as the self-decapitating goddess. Uh, Kapardini is generally the word, um, or Kappa or Kapardini is generally associated with uh, the head. Um, <clears throat> actually, Kapardini has more to do with the hair, but Kappa has to do with, and Kapalini or Kapalika, that has to do with um, things related to the head. And as you may notice, as you may have noticed with Kali, um, she wears a necklace of heads or a necklace of skulls. And um, so Chinamasta, now the way, how does Chinamasta look? Well, I'm actually going to read a description of the, the, the traditional iconography from uh, David Kinsley's book on um, the Ten Mahavidyas, Tantric Visions of the Divine Feminine. Um, <clears throat> okay, so here's what... Here's what um, we sort of have is the uh, introduction from from the text. Um, now, this is from the Hridhyana Shloka, which is the, uh, as you know, that's the sort of introductory um, prayer before one's uh, Namavali. Um, I meditate, meditate upon the goddess Chinamasta, who is seated in center of the sun's disc and holds in her left hand her own severed head with a gaping mouth. Her hair is disheveled, and she is drinking the stream of blood gushing from her own neck. She is seated on Rati and Kamadeva, who are engaged in sexual dalliance. She is rejoicing with her friends Dakini and Var Varnini. She stands in an aggressive manner with her leg put forward. She is holding her own severed head in one hand and a sword in the other. She is naked and happily drinks the blood that gushes from her headless body. She has three eyes and is adorned with a blue lotus at her heart. One should meditate on Chinamasta, who has the complexion of a red hibiscus flower. She stands on Kama and Rati, who are joined in sexual intercourse. To her right is Varnini, who is possessed by Rajas Guna, who is white in color, with loose hair, who holds a sword and a skull cup. She happily drinks the blood gushing from the Devi's severed neck. 
On her left is Dakini, who also drinks blood flowing from Chinamasta's headless body. She is possessed by Tamaskuna and enjoys the world in its state of dissolution. One should meditate on this goddess who bestows blessings on her devotees. Now, this is really interesting because you have, okay, so you've got this image of a naked goddess standing on top of a copulating couple, okay, a pair of copulating um, god, you know, god and goddess. And um, <clears throat> sometimes she's often portrayed as also having a necklace of skulls, but she's got a sword. She's cut her own head off, and the blood flows out in three streams. One stream goes, <laughs> goes actually into the mouth of the head that she's holding, her own head, and the other two are the um, go into the um, mouths of um, Dakini and uh, Varnini on either side of who are considered to be yoginis, okay, or attendants of uh, the goddess. Um, probably sort of related aspects is probably how you would interpret that. But um, and so the question becomes: Okay, so why is her head cut off, and why does she? Why why is all this blood streaming out? This is it's a it's a rather graphic and kind of gruesome image. And when you first see it, you kind of go, oh, "What?" You know. Um, but it's uh, but it's a fascinating image, and there's and there's there's just so much to unpack there. Um, so let me let me look at some of the origin myths. I think that's where I'd like to to start with this. Um, now again, back to Kinsley, he says he's discovered four accounts of Chinamasta's origin or emergence. The first two are written in texts that are very similar, while the third and fourth both very brief. Uh, he has found only in oral versions. Version one is found in the Pranatoshini Tantra, which in turn attributes the story to the Narada uh, Pancharatra. Okay, and it says, uh, One day Parvati went to bathe in the Man- Mandakini River with her attendants Jaya and Vijaya, which, by the way, is another name for those two, um, you know, attendants with her. After bathing, the great goddess's color became black because she was sexually aroused. Well, there's interesting, right? Blackness is associated with sexual arousal here. Now, there's uh, something to think about. After some time, her two attendants asked her, Give us some food. We are hungry. She replied, I shall give you food, but please wait. After a while, they again asked her. She replied, please wait. I am thinking about some matters. Waiting a while, they implored her, you are the mother of the universe. A child asks everything from her mother. The mother gives her children not only food, but also coverings for the body. So that is why we are praying to you for food. You are known for your mercy. Please give us food. Hearing this, the consort of Shiva told them that she would give anything, give them anything when they reached home. But again, her two attendants... Dakini and Varnini begged her, We are overpowered with hunger. O mother of the universe, give us food that we may be satisfied, O merciful one, bestower of boons and fulfiller of desires. Hearing this true statement, the merciful goddess smiled and severed her head with her fingernails. As soon as she severed her head, her head fell into the palm of her left hand. Three bloodstreams emerged from her throat. Left and right, respectively, fell into the mouths of her flanking attendants, and the center fell into her mouth. After performing this, all were satisfied and later returned home. From this act, <clears throat> Parvati became known as Chinamasta. Okay. And by the way, I should note that in Buddhism, there's a similar deity called Chinamunda. Um, and again, it refer- the, that is a term that refers to a goddess who has no head, who has been decapitated. Okay. Um, now, it says the second version of the origin of Chinamasta is from the Pran- uh, Pranatoshini Tantra, which in this case attributes the story to the Swatantra Tantra. And this story is told by Shiva. I shall tell you of the emergence of Chinamasta. In the Kripta, in the Kripta Yuga, 
on Mount uh, Kailasa, the best of mountains, Mahamaya was engaged in Mahavrata with me, sexual intercourse. At the time of my seminal emission, she appeared fierce, and from her body two Shaktis emerged, who became her two attendants known as Dakini and Varnani. One day, Chandanayika, uh, with her two attendants, went to the bank of the Pushpabhadra River. When it was noon, her hungry attendants asked Chandika, "'Please give us food.' Hearing this, she's the smiling and auspicious Chandika. Now, by the way, Chandika means like one who's angry. And another name of Chinamasta is Prachanda Chandike, which means furiously angry. So just keep that in mind, okay? And so she's the happy and smiling and auspicious Chandika. So it's the happy, smiling, and auspicious angry one, okay? She looks in all directions, and then she severed her head. With the left bloodstream, she satisfied Dakini. With the right one, she satisfied Varnani. And from the center one, she drank her own blood. After playing in this way, she replaced her head on her body and assumed her original form. At dusk, they returned home. When I saw her pale appearance, I suspected that she was abused by another. This infuriated me. From this anger, a portion of me arose and became known as Kroda Berva. Um... This happened on the day of Viraratri. Thus, Chinamasta was born on Viraratri. Okay? And um, now, this the, or, the oral traditions that he mentions. Um, she said, uh, <clears throat> now the, uh, let's see, let me get this name right. Shaktis, Shaktis Amagama Tantra, which uh, again attributes it to the Prantoshini Tantra. Uh, adds a few details. It says, according to this text, the goddess was in reverse sexual intercourse with Shiva. She was on top, and she dismounted Shiva before he ejaculated. Her attendants appeared when she went outside. This text says that at the river, the goddess and her attendants played in the water for some time. And the rest of the story is the same as the one from above. And another version, he said, was told by Ramashankar Tripati of the Kashi Vishnas temple at Varanasi who said that it had been told to him by a friend who was a tantric sadaka. In a war between the gods and demons, the gods realized they could not win, so they prayed to Mahashakti, the great goddess, for help. She was pleased with their prayer and asked Prachanda Chandika to help them. Yeah, the furiously angry. After killing all the demons, Prachanda Chandika remained enraged and cut her own head off and drank her own blood. Okay, now, so, hence, there's this idea that she was so enraged she cut her own head off. So this is the, the furiously angry part. Although... Still try to weigh that against the idea of the happy goddess who cuts her head off to drink blood. So, um, you know, again, keep this in mind. Um, Prachanda Chandika is the first name given to Chinamasta in her uh, Sahastranama Stotra, the Shakta Pramoda. Okay, which I'm actually having a very difficult time finding a copy of. I would like to get a copy of the Shakta Pramoda. If anybody happens to know where I can get one that has the um, appropriate... Um, like the Sanskrit transliterated into, um, you know, Roman characters, that would be really helpful. Um, uh, Swami Sadana Sastri, Swami Sadananda Sastri, a Shakta practitioner in uh, Varanasi, told the fourth version. Chinamasta appeared, he said, after the gods and demons churned the ocean. Chinamasta took the demon's share of the resulting amrita, which is the nectar of immortality, and drank it herself. Then she killed herself by cutting off her own head to deprive the demons of their share of immortality. This is how she enabled the gods to achieve their superior position. Very interesting. Okay. So there's so much here to unpack. Um, 
you want to talk about your opposites in one deity, okay? She's chopping her own head off, but chopping her head off um, spawns life. It spawns blood. The blood is, is the life. And so if she's sharing her blood as nourishment, as food or drink, um, which sounds almost vampiric, um, but it does certainly connect with the idea of blood as the the life flow. And she is standing on a copulating couple, you know, which presumably, I mean, obviously sex isn't always about reproduction, but there's a sense of that being a creative act rather than a destructive one. And she is referred to as Chandika or Prachanda Chandika. And she's a goddess, but she's, she's, she seems to be very, very happy and feeling playful, chopping her own head off and giving her blood. So what in the world are we going to make of all of this? Well, um, so when we look at the the sort of the scholarship on this, or if we just kind of look at the symbolism, um, the very first one that they talk about is self-sacrifice. So again, in that first account, it's her two companions are hungry. This is why she provides the food. And that said, although initially she tries to put them off, eventually she feeds them on her blood. Um, and so this kind of talks about her role as mother of the universe, as nourisher. But it definitely gets down to an idea of the mother of the universe as sort of either being bloody or being... There's like a dark element to that um, that reminds me of sort of Jung's writings about the Earth Mother and all of her attributes. The Earth Mother, according to Jung... Um, you know, that probably because of menstruation um, and menstruation's connection to um, uh, basically to puberty, to, to the ability uh, to give birth. Although when one menstruates, that's when the, the cycle is ended and you have to wait for the uh, lining to build up again in order for a woman to be able to become pregnant. Um, nonetheless, menstruation is the sign of womanhood, sort of crossing over into womanhood. And <clears throat> Jung felt that a lot of mythologies of, uh, you know, um, vir- you know, <clears throat> uh, sacrificing the virgin or um, the dragons guarding the virgins or things like that, um, or all co- or the kinds of terrors that are often carried out on young women. We talked about that in some previous podcasts. You know, the hanging virgins and um, some of the other punishments of Artemis and other goddesses of girls who um, went outside of the uh, you know accepted. Their accepted role sexually. Um, you know, Jung said these are always carried out by, you know, an earth mother, which is why he felt it was more a symbol of um, you know, these kinds of punishments. He said, so it's kind of more of a symbol of, you know, that movement from girlhood to womanhood and the, the bloody bloodiness involved rather than about, um, you know, uh, you know, rather than rather than about the Earth Mother being cruel in some way, it's just it, it, it's basically pointing the essential paradoxical facts of nature. Um, now, again, in in just for comparison here, in the Western view, when we look at Adam and Eve, a lot of the times that initial myth of Adam and Eve is interpreted as, um, you know, you know <clears throat> that the fact that like you know was what does Yahweh say when he throws them out of the garden? You know, you shall now have labor pains when you give birth. You know, he he basically makes it as though it's a it's a punishment for disobedience. And we kind of tend to view it that way. Like, you know, that's why it's the woman's role in, in, in some conservative versions of um, monotheistic religion. You know, 
well, you need to obey your husband and you need to submit and you need to be on the bottom and you need to submit and, and you need to, um, you know, and, and, you know, you, you suffer through that because, you know, that's your lot through Eve, you know, <clears throat> and I've heard that, um, now I'm thinking of the uh, Stephen King movie Carrie, you know, where uh, uh, Carrie gets her period for the first time, and her mother starts her mother crazy mother starts beating her and saying Eve was weak, Eve was weak, making her repeat it. You know what I mean? It's that <clears throat> that idea. So this this kind of gives this um, kind of a very different feel because we're getting back to the idea. Because the thing is, she's shedding this blood, but she's shedding it joyfully. She's making a joyful sacrifice. This isn't, she's not crying out in pain. She's not upset. And then when she's done, she just sticks her head back on, you know, at least in some versions. But her iconography is that of her her head, you know, coming off. So so we have this idea of sacrifice, which kind of, um, which may go along with the the mother sentiment. Um, So it's a sacrifice that's given joyfully. Um, But... You know, again, her her nude posture, her standing on top of the copulating couple, um, to me, it's not the same as the uh, the chaste, obedient woman. This is the woman who just um, very freely gives what she has. Almost reminds me, in a way, of the Thelemic Babylon. I mean, Babylon does not have an iconography of cutting her own head off, but you know. But again, that sort of um, you know, um, you know, sex and blood and and life and death. The way that it kind of comes together there, there's there's definitely kind of this um, this very strong current or very strong element of, um, you know, it's not it's not what we're used to in the West. We would we would tend to see this as a horrific act, or um, as a gruesome act, or you know, as somehow we would not see this as a. Um, you know, as a religious act with deep, this kind of deep meaning. But, but it does, but it has that, okay? Um, <clears throat> so just to give, again, just kind of referring back to Kinsley uh, here for a minute on the self-sacrifice, he says, the obvious implication here is of primal sacrifice and renewal of creation. The goddess sacrifices herself and her blood, drunk by her attendants, renews or resuscitates the universe. Therefore, beheading her own head is a temporary expedient to provide food and appears to be a more sanguinary manifestation of the goddess as uh, Shakambari, she who bears vegetables, and Anapurna, she who is full of food. Okay, <clears throat> so there's the sacrifice element there. She is She provides renewal through sacrificing herself. And you could, that actually makes sense too if you think about the way that one harvests crops or kills animals for food. You know, by eating in order for you, that's one of the great paradoxes that I think a lot of religious mythology tries to address. Um, because religions really, and I've said this before, uh, they get started, um, at least at least religious, um, what we think of as religious um, actions, like burials, for instance, which are some of the oldest examples of religious behavior. Um, they center around death. Because there's a consciousness there that does not appear to be there anymore. So the question becomes, why does life come to an end? And I'm not saying that mythology is trying to directly answer this question, but they are, in kind of symbolic form, trying to show the paradox of the way in in which life works, in that it demands blood. In order for, Okay, think about this. In order for you to live, you have to eat, Okay. Now, what do you eat, okay? Now, um, you know, we, we slaughter animals all the time to eat, right? And then some people may say, well, that's all well and good, but I'm a vegetarian. And I'm like, okay, but plants also are alive. 
Um, they're not, you know, they may not have a face on them the way that a, you know, like a, a cow does or, you know, a pig or something like that. But nonetheless, um, studies were done in the 70s on plants. You know, the, the plants seem to have a kind of sentience, even though it's a little bit different. So plants are aware when you're cutting them or ripping them out of the ground. They don't necessarily like it. Okay. At least that's, that's the interpretation. But, um, but nonetheless, you know, so whether, even if you eat vegetables, even if you just eat bread, bread comes from wheat. Wheat is a crop that has to be killed. Whole John Barleycorn story. I mean, of course, that barleycorn, we tend to think more of, uh, you know, liquor that comes out of it, which you either mash it up for liquor or you grind it up so that you can make bread. Um, you know, that's kind of these ideas of these sort of pagan stories about, you know, the plant that, you know, the, the, the blood sacrifice of the pagan is actually kind of like, okay, I'm giving back to the fields because they give their blood, you know, the animals and the plants give their blood all the time for us to be able to continue to live. So there you go. It's, it's that sacrifice that occurs all the time when we eat. Because eating is what sustains us and allows us to continue living. Blood is required. And again, it doesn't have to be the blood of an animal, you know. Um, you know, you don't have to see any physical blood. There's still the idea that something has sacrificed its life so that something else can live or be replenished or nourished in some way. So there's the sacrificial element of Chinamasta. Now, the next thing we want to look at in her iconography is the head, okay? She's cut off her own head. And, um, and in the YouTube version of this, I will most certainly have um, images, but she is also either portrayed as wearing a necklace of skulls or heads herself, okay, in many of these um, <clears throat> uh, ideas. And um, so she is, uh, you know, so, you know, and, and um, uh, Kinsley points out that when the animal sacrifice is performed in India, the, the, usually the animal is decapitated, the head is taken off, Okay. Now, um, you know, so, so then the question becomes, okay, well, what's the importance of the head? Okay. Um, now, um, again, I'm just referring back to Kinsley again. He discusses the idea of the head as a power object. Okay. And the reason that, especially, uh, people who practice Tantra and go to, um, cemeteries or cremation grounds, they want to have a skull, uh, they're looking for skulls or they sit upon skulls. Because the idea is that, um, you know, there, there's the idea of uh, the universe as being a vibration of sound. So when we make sound, we tend to make sound through our mouths. So the head is very important in terms of, you know, the, the neck is too, really. But, but the head is important in terms of where <clears throat> uh, sound comes from. So if you're going to recite your mantra, for instance, or, you know, you know speaking or, or singing or, or whatever it is that you're doing, um, you know, because you have to remember that words are, are, are often sacred, and certainly initially, uh, the scriptures that are written down or the, the early um, mythologies or histories were oral traditions, okay? Um, you know, what's spoken is considered to be very important, and that comes through through the mouth, through the head. Um, the breath also comes that way. It comes through your mouth or it comes through your nose. Um, now, the head is also the place where we have our brain, um, now, interestingly, a lot of cultures do not focus heavily on the brain when it comes to consciousness. We focus very heavily on the brain in the West. We assume the brain controls everything. Now, I'm sure there will be people out here who will disagree with me. However, I'm, I'd still put it to people, even after um, what I've studied in the neuroscience of religion and, and um, 
you know, what I, <clears throat> you know, and I'm not, I'm not an expert in neurology and, and neuroscience and that sort of thing. I'm not even going to pretend to be because I feel like, <clears throat> um, you know, it's not, it's not useful for what I'm doing. I, I feel like you're, you're focused too much on the, um, the mediator and not on the source. See, to me, consciousness is the source is not in the brain where the source is. I couldn't tell you that I know. Um, I don't, I don't necessarily have a guess, but I feel like consciousness is something that's in our bodies and also outside of our bodies. And it's a network that connects us. Um, which by the way, I have heard that there are neuroscientific theories that do point to the idea of, um, consciousness as kind of a neural net of kind of a network of minds of different people, which kind of goes back to Jung, who everybody seems to have rejected, which is kind of funny, but, um, nonetheless, okay. So you have this, um, because to me, the brain is a filter, okay? So what happens if you, um, you know, if you become depressed? They say, well, that's because your brain's producing too much serotonin. We're going to inhibit the serotonin. Now, um, so you supposedly take these drugs that will um, that will do that. Now, those, these drugs may have an effect. I'm not saying that they're all, you know, bollocks or that they don't work. Um, and some people need them. I'm not, you know, saying that, you know, people who, you know, don't have those kinds of issues, you know, like anti-anxiety meds are supposed to calm the amygdala down or, or, you know, do, they're supposed to do different things to different parts of your brain so that um, you can function. Now, of course, taking these drugs does not necessarily, unless your problem is entirely chemically based, generally does not solve the anxiety or the depression. It just simply helps you manage it, okay? Because the solution to it, um, it deals with something uh, a lot deeper, but consciousness, um, in a lot of places, sometimes people felt it came from the heart. Um, in Hindu thinking, uh, and perhaps Buddhist too, to some degree, consciousness um, runs through your spinal cord, okay, kind of through your nervousness. That's at least where it's housed. I don't know if that's its origin, but certainly in the human body, that's where it's housed. And this is what's known as kundalini or kundalini shakti. Okay, shakti is the energy and consciousness in your body. And it functions, it's like a serpent that um, goes up through your spinal column. <clears throat> um, now, most of the time, this serpent is sort of said to be coiled at the base, which is why most of our, maybe many, most of our day-to-day thoughts and interests, they may be sex-driven, they may be food-driven, because the lower chakras are said to have to do more with survival, okay? They might have to do with reproduction, Um it's interesting because they, they say that um, the, you know, where your sex organs are has a lot to do with um, where, where your drive is. So for a man who has a penis, his sex organ is in the muladhara chakra, which is the first one, uh, which again is definitely more primal and more instinct-driven. Women's, women's sex organs are higher up. Um, the, the uterus is located in uh, the Svadhisthana chakra, which is the second one. And the Svadhisthana um, is sort of, you know, again, you people will argue about what the chakras mean or what they don't mean. Or, you know, chakras, chakras, however you want to say that. Um, but it, that tends to be more associated with um, security, um, perhaps with, um, you know, with building a home. You know, so the idea is that this is why, you know, and again, I'm speaking very broadly and making a broad generalization. So don't take this as gospel of any kind. But... You know, this is why it's kind of said that women tend to be more interested when they are in a relationship. We're talking heterosexual, cis, cisgender relationships, whatever, man and a woman relationships. 
uh, that that's why the man may be less commitment oriented and thinking more about sex, where the woman cares less about sex, but she's more interested in maybe having a family or having a commitment or building a house or settling down. Okay. That's at least sort of the general thing. I recognize that all, not all men think that way and nor do all women. But um, but this is something – This where you get that kind of stereotype in a way kind of matches up to what, what is considered to be the functions of those sexual centers. Now, um, we there, there's supposed to be – there's seven main chakras, okay? which we've talked about. But the idea is that they move from the, you know, when, when one meditates or one has their, um, their Shakti activated, how do you have your Shakti activated? Um, there's different ways that can happen. Generally, it's some kind of a teacher or guru or, you know, who gives you a month. Like if you are initiated with a mantra, that should activate your Shakti. Okay. And you know when your Shakti is activated because, um, it um, you can actually feel it move up the spinal column to the top of your head, and that um, that creates a and and if it actually makes it up all the way to the top, that that creates an incredible kind of experience. Um, I've had it happen to me a few times, and when it does, it it's really really hard to explain because it's not really something you can put into words, but it puts you in kind of a very centered, a very quiet, and a very blissful kind of a state. And you don't feel, um, it's not necessarily that you're happy, you know, you're not unhappy, for sure. Um, but you're also, you're just kind of, you're kind of aware of everything as it is, and you understand that everything is as it is supposed to be, that makes any sense, it doesn't entirely make sense, but, you know, everything both kind of positive, negative, good, bad, in terms of our judgments, like the judgments fall away, everything just is, Okay. And that's time. That's at least one experience that can happen when the shakti um, is activated and, it, and it, it jumps up. Now, having said that, this is not something I would I would caution people um, against trying to activate that on their own because if it's activated improperly or too quickly, um, that's a little like setting fire to something. I mean, it, it it's it is like a fire up in the thing. And if it's not, if you don't have um, a teacher there to help moderate or help you. Um, you run the risk of actually uh, mental illness and all other kinds of things um, and other kinds of health problems and so forth because of the Shakti um, maybe getting caught in certain things or it may just come rush through you in a way that your your body's not prepared for. I should mention, too, that yoga, we think about Hatha yoga, there's a lot of arguments in Western religion, particularly within the Catholic Church, where I've seen arguments where they say, well, no Christian should practice yoga, okay? Now, why do they say that? They say that because, well, um, and I don't, I sort of partially agree with them, which might surprise you. Um, I mean, obviously people go to a yoga studio and they're, they're just stretching or whatever. That, that's not, you know, that's not that big of a deal. But when you practice other kinds of yoga, when you true kundalini yoga or raja yoga or some of these other ones, um, you have to remember that yoga is a preparation of the body for the shakti force to rise up. Okay. So the shakti, um, you know, that's the, the whole idea is that the, both the pranayama, which is the breathing exercises, and the physical uh, movements that you perform, all of these are supposed to help um, activate your, your you know, the, the proper channeling of your shakti, okay? Um, and again, yes, I, I would agree that that's not something you should try to do from reading a book or, or you know, watching a video or doing something like that. You know, shakti should be activated by the appropriate person, 
by a guru, and it's not necessarily, um, you know, um, you know, there's a lot of gurus who will do it, but you know, just make sure it's somebody you know that you're comfortable with if you actually uh, do want to go down that route, and and be careful of people who who claim to be uh, tantrics or claim to be certain things, you know, especially especially a lot of Western people. Like, I would never claim to be able to activate anyone's Shakti. I, I would never make that claim, um, even if I have some experience with it, because I am not a guru, okay? Um, and, and just be careful of people who, you know, may do spiritual advisement or counseling or, or yoga or other things who get involved with that. You got to be real, re- I'd be real, real careful. Okay, that's kind of a digression, but Kundalini is relevant here because the because at least one interpretation of that iconography is that Chinnamasta's head is like literally blown off because the Kundalini force, which is represented, and we're going to get into the um, copulating couple underneath her. Um, now, there's two ways to interpret the copulating couple, or at least there's been two interpretations. Okay, Kama and Rati. Now, Kama's the god of desire. Um, and Rati is his, um, his partner. They both represent intercourse. They both represent desire, a sexual desire. Now, some people say, well, the fact that Chinnamasta is standing on top of them means she has sort of conquered them or she's crushing them as kind of a lower impulse. I think that's a mistaken interpretation, but that is, that is an interpretation. And one, what I, what I would grant to that interpretation is the possibility in the same way that you'll see, um, uh, like a matrika, like Chamunda, wearing a tiger skin, um, you know, or certain other gods, like Shiva, for instance, also wears a tiger skin, or Durga. The wearing of a tiger skin means that they have the desires under control, okay? So the idea is there's nothing wrong with desire, but it needs to be in balance, okay? It needs to be moderated. Um, so it could represent, you know, the sexual impulse and desire in balance, and, and actually it would be, because if she's standing on top of it, the other thing is that the energy from the sex act, which when you think about it, um, the feet and below up through the, the genitals and the, 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 the base sex organs, you know, by the thighs before you really get into the pelvis, is the muladhara chakra area. It covers that, that region. So um, the idea is that the, the energy at that root shoots upward. And it shoots up so powerfully from the sex act that, um, and this this is the idea where you get the idea of tantric sex as well, because that that would be the idea of using sex as a technique to achieve this. Um, that the, the, the shakti goes straight through the head, and in this case, um, it's so powerful that it, it blows the head off. I mean, that's you know, that's kind of um, that's at least another interpretation. Um, whether everyone agrees with that or not, I don't know. But nonetheless. Um, there's definitely the sense of, okay, you've got the, the sexual energy at the root, and then it comes up, but then when the head comes off, see, with the head coming off, too, the head is often, we talk about being too much inside your head or too much inside your mind. Um, we certainly perceive thoughts as being inside of our head. And as I was saying, and I think I was starting to say, and I, I, as usual, I managed to distract myself, I tend to see the brain as a filter. Um, because when your brain, when you start experiencing dementia and things like that, you start seeing shit that other people don't see. And I think that, and, and again, you could just say, oh, that person's hallucinating or they're delusional or whatever. And, and maybe they are. But um, on the other hand, I say, well, maybe they're just seeing something that's out of the purview of what we would see because our brain filters are working appropriately. Okay? I don't know. I don't, I don't have a clear answer to that. It's something I often speculate on. But nonetheless, we certainly, um, 
whether it's because, you know, our ears are there and our mouth, you know, that's where we articulate things. But we certainly hear um, when we're thinking, we, we always think of thoughts as being in our head. Okay. And what do they tell you when you meditate? That the mind is your problem. You need to get rid of the mind. So when you cut the head off, you're like getting rid of the mind. That's why cutting the head off is often a symbol of liberation. And that's another thing that Chinamasta represents, liberation from illusion, liberation from letting, <clears throat> letting your mind and your worry and anxiety control everything. Okay, So there's that, that element of it. Okay. So you, so you have the copulation thing and, and the two different things. And then, of course, you have the drinking of blood. And as we indicated, you know, that, that has to do with the life force, with mortality, with immortality, too. If we talk about the Amrita, um, uh, what is it? Um, the, um, where did I see this? Uh, oh, I just missed my... Um, let me find it. Uh, okay. Now, I was just trying to find um, the, the name. Yeah, I was right. Amrita. I don't know why, for some reason, all of a sudden, the name Amrita sounded wrong to me. I was like, is that right? Yes, it's right. Okay. The nectar of immortality. Okay. So, um, now blood is not Amrita, but nonetheless, it is what sustains life. And so, this goes back to um, the drinking of blood as nourishing so this is the idea that, um, li- again, life feeds on itself. There's another mytholo- um, Hindu myth associated with that that I'm going to talk about um, in a moment. But um, I wanted to um, – I was looking back at um, Mataji Devi Vanamali's book um, on Shakti. And she, um, she has a description of Chinamasta that I, I want to discuss. Says Chinamasta is depicted as stark naked. She carries in her left hand her own head, which she has seemingly severed herself with the sword held in her right. Okay, we know this. Three streams plow. You know, um, the two yoginis, female yoga practitioners, who are on either side. And then they talks about um, you know uh, Kama, and um, so she says she goes on to talk about um, okay the powers of the Mahavidyas. She says, even though a few of the Mahavidyas appear to have appealing forms, on the whole, they are meant to be ferocious deities. With the exception of Kali, they are not known to be warriors, but are meant to project certain esoteric truths, which the Sadaka, one who is a student of the spiritual discipline, is supposed to find out for her or himself. Most of them play a part in tantric rituals. Their powers are meant to subdue the enemy by various methods. These powers include uh, Marana, the ability to destroy the enemy, Uchatana, the ability to force a person to stop whatever he or she is doing. Kashobana, the ability to cause emotional disturbance. Mohana, the ability to cause delusion and infatuation. Dravana, the ability to cause people to run in terror. Jumbana, the ability to cause people to become lazy and keep yawning. Is that my problem? And uh, Stambana, the ability to cause paralysis. All the conditions these powers can initiate are not just physical maladies, but also psychological and emotional ones, okay? And they can affect our material and spiritual life, okay? The Mahavidyas can be invoked to get rid of these emotional ailments and give us moksha or liberation. Again, back to the decapitation, the removal of the head, the getting rid of the mind, okay? Now, uh, she goes on to say, creation and destruction are part of the cosmic process. The economy of the universe is kept in balance by a harmonious alteration of giving and taking life. Right, just what I said. The ever-bountiful figure of Anapurna, Lakshmi in her form as giver of food, giving food shows only one aspect of the process, that of giving. 
Kali shows us the picture of the goddess severing the heads of others and demanding their blood as nourishment. In fact, demons often sacrifice their own heads to the goddess. This represents the truth that the forces of the cosmos, as depicted by the goddess, require regular nourishment. Since we have received life from her, we are obliged to give it back to her. Life can be maintained only by the ingestion of the corpses of other beings. That's another way to say what I just said, but yes, there you go. Now, specifically about Chinamasta. Chinamasta conveys the same message but reverses the roles. She gives her own blood to herself and to her two devotees. Instead of taking the heads of her victims and drinking their blood, she takes her own head and drinks her own blood. She is nourished not by death, but by the copulating couple beneath her. This is one of the most dramatic pictorial representations of the stark reality of life. It points out that life, sex, and death are all part of a closely interrelated system. None of them can exist alone. The whole scene, ghastly though it might appear to the casual viewer, becomes clear to the sadhaka who strives for a deeper meaning uh, to reality. This striking spectacle points out many of the truths that we tend to cloak with a weak sentimentalism to mask our inherent inability to face the gory aspects of life. As far as nature is concerned, the sole necessity for sex is to propagate life, which in turn will decay and feed another life and time in another, another time and another place. In other words, life feeds on and is nourished by death. The copulating couple pump the goddess with their own life-giving energy, which she in turn offers back to herself and to her children or devotees by the sacrifice of cutting off her own head. Life is portrayed by the copulating couple, death by the decapitated goddess, and the renewal of life by the yoginis drinking her blood. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so it's, uh, so, and, and, and she goes on to talk about the realism of this, Okay how realistic this is and how in your face this kind of an image is. But this, again, goes back to the whole, what I consider to be the whole purpose of Chthonia, okay? The whole purpose of Chthonia is to, um, is to talk about, you know, <clears throat> facing those dark energies that we, we do try to, as she puts it very well, cloak in sentimentalism, that we try to water down because we um they make us uncomfortable or we're offended by them or you know they're they're just the aspects of things that we we want to keep under control so the way that we control things is we try to repress them or try to say that they're bad and we're going to get rid of them and um images like this show you <clears throat> um that this this is something no that it's the beauty of how life sex and death are all interconnected with each other and how they're all an important part of the system. You know, this idea of conquering death or getting rid of it is rubbish. You, you know, it's part of what it means to be alive. And the idea is that, you know, everything kind of, you know, recycles. This is probably why there's a belief in reincarnation as well. The idea that everything kind of <clears throat> cycles through itself and, and, and returns again in, in some other form or is at least used to nourish another form. Okay. Um, there's another myth I had. I have a note here to mention, and I mentioned, alluded to it briefly. Uh, Joseph Campbell talks about it in his lectures on uh, Eastern and Western religion, um, in, in you know in the future, and it's the the mythology of Kirtimukha. Okay, this is a Shiva myth, a Shiva Parvati myth. Uh, Shiva is um, there's one day when uh, a demon comes and approaches Shiva, and demands that he wants to you know have sex with his wife. And Shiva, of course, does not take kindly to this, so he, his, third, his terrible third eye opens, and a demon appears with, with a face like a lion. And the demon is terrified, and he immediately throws himself on Shiva's mercy. Now, Shiva, being Shiva, if you throw yourself on Shiva's mercy, he'll, he'll 
flip on a dime and he'll say, oh, okay, you know, I'll be merciful. And so he tells the demon not to eat, tells the, the, the monster that he's produced from his third eye not to eat the demon. And the monster says, well, what should I eat then? Because you produced me to, to eat him. And now if I can't eat him, what do I eat? So Shiva thought about it for a minute and he said, eat yourself. So the monster did. It uh, proceeded to start with uh, its feet and it worked its way all the way up until nothing was left but what is described as a shining mask. Okay, and Shiva was so impressed with this that he wanted that that mask of Kirti Mukha put a, um, over the doorways of all of his temples, because it represented the sublime beauty of life, life that feeds upon itself, the beauty of something that devours itself. And uh, again, this is a this is a viewpoint I think that's extremely alien to us in the West. Um, I try to I, I actually teach that myth to my religion students and. You know, they, they tend to kind of look at it in other ways. They think like, well, you know, in terms of consuming, maybe it has to do with consumer culture or with capitalism or things like that. And I'm like, it's something more fundamental on that as a, than that. The fact that in order for you to live, something else has to die. Okay. And I love the myth of Chinamasta because I feel like Chinamasta really embodies, I mean, she really, really shows that. And she shows it through the divine feminine. So she is both gentle, happy, and motherly and nourishing at the same time that she is gruesome, decapitating, and, um, you know, she's at her full energy peak because she's standing. She's standing on Kama and Rati. They, that, that energy flows through her. That is the, that is the sex drive. Because, again, we're also kind of taught, I've even been taught by other Hindus, like, oh, the sex drive, you know, you, you know people should restrain and be celibate and refrain. Okay, well, you know what, there's, there's, um, there's a, there's a rationale to celibacy, too, because the idea of celibacy is that one therefore contains and controls the sexual energy and perhaps puts it to other uses. But, there, but that also doesn't mean that, you know, there's anything wrong with releasing the sexual energy. Because that, um, you know, done, you know, perhaps in the right of certain way, one can also um, awaken that energy. And really what happens is if you have a kundalini awakening... And not one that's like traumatic. Some people have had traumatic Kundalini awakenings, um, and uh, so again, you know, I, I was talking to a, a colleague who had told me about a thing like that had happened uh, when she was studying. She studied Eastern religions in India, and um, she had a group, was working with a guru who activated her Kundalini without her permission or without her knowledge, and that really that she still talks about it. I mean, it still traumatizes her. So. You know, there's, uh, you know, yeah, again, use caution because it's kind of like it's kind of like the flamethrower in your body. You know, just be careful how how that energy gets used. I think the reason that there's an injunction against worshiping Chinamasta for householders is that the idea is that you don't you want to be, you know, that that's extremely, extremely potent life force. And it's it's way more potent than you you can even like visualize in your thoughts. Your consciousness energy is extremely, the Shakti is extremely, extremely powerful. I mean, it's the source energy of everything. So if it awakens, you want to be real careful about how that's used. Because you could end up destroying yourself, and who knows, maybe even other people with, you know, with, if, you know, with whatever happens. But nonetheless, when it's activated properly, um, it's, you know, it's what's capable of helping you when they talk in meditation about detaching from the world, about staying in the center, about being in a place of quiet, about being able to kind of feel just sort of the bliss of everything as it is, um, without any need to, to change or to improve or to fix anything, 
okay? Um, the kind of thing we talked about in the last episode that Ramakrishna describes when he feels merged with Mother Kali, okay? It, it's that same idea, and and that's what the Kundalini awakening does. I mean, it, it just, and, you know, it, and it can. It can, it can put you in, in some kind of a state, which is why it can't really be sustained. I mean, the energy goes up, and then it, it, it drops back down again. But while it happens, it's it's quite a remarkable experience. And like I said, I've been fortunate enough to have that happen in very much a um, guided environment, shall we say, on at least I can I can think of at least six or seven occasions, but there's probably more. And um, uh, and by the way, I'm just going to say if you're Catholic uh, and you take communion, that is also capable of producing a very similar effect. I didn't know that. I don't know that it necessarily performs a Kundalini awakening, but the experience is very similar. Um, it, but but again, if you haven't had the the awakening beforehand, you're not going to probably notice that when you take the Eucharist. Um, so people like who practice, you know, centering prayer, or they're very deeply involved in certain kinds of devotionals, for instance, um, they also have that kind of experience. Um, and again, I can't say whether their Shakti is awakened or not, but it, it does produce a very similar kind of effect. So it, it, it probably has some kind of an effect on um, on that energy. So, um, okay, so this is what I'm going to say about Chinamasta. Um, again, very, um, very powerful, uh, Hindu icon, very powerful symbolism and, um, really sends home the message of, uh, life feeding on life. And, um, it's just one of those things that we, um, in our, in our world of ethical religions that, you know, we tend to shun away from because it has to do with, you know, the shedding of blood and, you know, and sexual behavior and so forth. We, we've kind of all been taught that, you know, that's all bad, but, um, you know, but, but, but here it is and it's the stark reality of life. Okay. So let me, um, end there about Chinamasta and, um, this month I'm probably going to be releasing podcasts a little early. Uh, because, namely because I have um, a conference I'm going to uh, when this one's due out. Uh, I think this one's due on around, around March 9th. Uh, I have a conference to go to. And then the second one's going to be due um, to come out the day that I come back uh, from a trip to England. So um, it's, you know, so I'm, I'm going to try to have everything kind of, you know, upload, uploaded and ready to go uh, in advance for this month. Um, so thank you again for tuning in. Um, if you're watching the YouTube version, my links are at the, you know, probably on the links slide already at this point, but, uh, I'm hoping to have sort of a grand re-unveiling, uh, early in May, um, maybe in time for my one year anniversary of the podcast. So stay tuned for that. If you wish to support me, I'm on patreon.com slash Cthonia, and I'm also on, uh, social media as Cthonia podcast. Uh, two words on Facebook and Twitter, one word on uh, Instagram, and uh, just Cthonia on YouTube. Uh, thanks again. Thanks to my patrons for your continued support. Um, I really do appreciate it. I should have another video coming for you guys fairly soon. And, um, and there are some other perks that go along with being a, a Patreon donor, so please do check that out. Um, and with that, um, I will say uh, until the next time. <laughs>